Amen. That psalm is a uh, imprecatory psalm, and an imprecatory psalm is a psalm of uh, asking the Lord's vengeance against his uh, enemies. And this psalm was written um, when Israel was captive in Babylon, and um, they lost their song, so to speak, uh, while they were in exile. And uh, Israel asked, why shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Sometimes in our life, when we're enduring various trials, we often uh, forget the Lord. And that is what Israel was saying here. Uh, the psalmist was saying about Israel that when they were in captivity, they lost their song. They lost their praise for God. Um, but, and they asked God to remember them who asked for Israel to be destroyed. And so uh, we ask God to remember the enemies who tried to destroy his people in our land and in our day. And it's okay to pray prayers like that, that the Lord destroys the enemies of his church and enemies of his people. Because in that great day when he comes back, all enemies will be put under his feet. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. May Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, your word tells us in Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 26 and 27, that the Spirit helps us in our infirmities and our weaknesses. Lord, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches our hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Lord, we bless you that we dare to use your name without question. Lord, many of us feel the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. We thank you, Lord, that we are passed from death into life and have begotten again a new and living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, you who sit on the throne and make all things new, you have made us new and called us into newness of life and made us to feel a life within us which will outlast the ages to come for it is your eternal life in all of us. Lord, we will not kneel before you like a slave before a tyrant. But Lord, we feel the spirit of adoption, which shall draw us into a familiar relationship with you. Though, Lord, we still tremble before your throne, you are still the God in heaven, and we are still man upon the earth. And Lord, at the very sight of you, we feel trembling coming over us. And yet, Lord, there is joy with it because you have taught us to rejoice with trembling because you are our father. Lord, we would in spirit now pass into the place where Christ is right now, serving as our high priest. Lord, we bless you that the veil is rent in two 
and that all of us have access. Every believer is made a priest and every believer is permitted to come into the Holy of Holies and to draw near unto you, Lord. Without fear of being regarded as an intruder. Lord, we thank you that because of the priestly work of Christ that all of us can come to you without fear, without trepidation in our hearts. We can come to you anytime before your throne, Lord. So, Lord, we stand before you in your presence and our very heart speaks to you. And we rejoice, Lord, that you who search the heart, that you know what our hearts will say. Every single heart in here and every single heart who is watching this, Lord, you know what our hearts are saying. And Lord, if our lips should fail to speak out what our heart feels, Lord, you still interpret what is written in every bosom. And Lord, if no lip this morning should express desire, Lord, you still know. The Spirit still knows our groanings. And Lord, we thank you for the great intercessor, the third person of the Trinity, who intercedes for us when we don't have the words to pray. So Lord, every heart is open before you as a book, and you read the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So Lord, first we earnestly ask that every believer here may feel the power of the sprinkled blood which we just sung about most clearly and consciously. May we hear Jesus say by it that we are clean, that we are clean everywhere in our bodies. And Lord, may we have a sense of eternal security because you have said yourself that when you see the blood, you will pass over us. And Lord, this is the blood of our Passover and no destroying death angel can touch us. Now, Lord, next to this, we give each one of your children power to become the sons of God in our actions. May we be more and more like our Lord. May we begin to exercise our sonship by conquering ourselves. Help us, Father, to put down every sin, to put away every sin, to lay aside every sin that so easily besets us. Lord, may every sinful thought be driven out and every thought be brought into the captivity to the Spirit of God. Oh, Lord, help us to be perfectly consecrated, set aside for your service because we are your children. Lord, may we not live like children of the devil, neither serve him nor serve our affections and sinful desires. And Lord, grant us to become sons by reason of the spirit of boldness that we should feel. Lord, give us not again the spirit of bondage that we may fear, that we may fear man. But Lord, give us, we pray, more and more of the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Lord, purify us. Cleanse us. You have pardoned us. Lord, purify us until every sin be destroyed within our hearts. Lord, we pray that you hear the prayers of your children who ask for strength and assistance in their time of need. Spirit of God, help our infirmities. Help us in our weaknesses. Help us, Lord, in our persecutions. Help us, Lord, in our sorrows. 
if we be pressed down with a load of sorrow, if we are in perplexity and confusion and know not what to do, Lord, if we are slandered and persecuted, if we are in any way are made to feel the weight of the cross, Lord, help us, we pray, we ask. Let not our weaknesses be staggered by that portion of our lot in life which comes under the head of tribulation. Lord, may we rather rejoice in our infirmities because the power of God does rest upon us. And Lord, may we glory in our tribulations also because these things work in us by your good spirit, all manner of holy graces to your glory. Lord, deliver your people from anxious care and indeed from caring about ourselves. Lord, give us power to roll all of our burdens upon you and to sing all day long because we are yours and you are ours. Lord, give us the power to cast all of our cares upon you and not be selfish and prideful and carry them within ourselves. Lord, you are our shepherd. We shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord our God forever. Lord, make us happy and holy people. Help us to live the separated life and to tread it with firm and brave steps. Help us, Lord, while we wrestle not with flesh and blood, to fight with powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And Lord, may it be ours to be made by your spirit to triumph in every place, being led in triumph by you from strength to strength, from time to time, from age to age, from glory to glory. Until that day, Lord, when you are glorified and when we are glorified. And Lord, now we pray for those who don't know you. Lord, we ask the Spirit to convince and convict men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And especially, Lord, convict the human heart of the sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make this to be very clear to the heart that not believing in Jesus is the highest act of hostility against God. The rejection of God when he comes, when he became man and dies out of infinite love. Surely this is the highest crime and misdemeanor against the great king. Lord, oh, that this may strike like an arrow into the heart of some. If they cannot accuse themselves of any terrible sin in the eyes of man. Lord, yet many of the worst of all sins be laid like a millstone upon their conscience. That they have refused the son of God and done this despite his precious blood. And how they shall escape if they neglect so great a salvation. O Spirit of God, lay this home and then convince them of righteousness. Let them see where righteousness is to be had, even in Christ. Let them know that righteousness is demanded of them. And if they have it not from Christ, they will never have it. And they must perish in their sins. So, Father, bring the sinner to his knees. Bring the conscience to tenderness. And then, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus Christ to the troubled heart. And let there be a peace of God through faith. Lord, we have many things to pray for this morning, but Lord, you know them all. 
Lord, lastly, I pray for um, the saints among us this morning, whatever troubles we have in our congregations, whatever sorrows that we may have, whatever trials and tribulations, Father, that we are experiencing. We pray, Lord, that you be with them, that you attend to their needs by your mercy and grace. We continue to lift Emily up to you. She's grieving the loss of her father. She is uh, not feeling well this morning. We pray, Lord, that you be with her, that you minister to her by your spirit, that you encourage her by your spirit, that she may be encouraged by the prayers of the saints and the love of her God. And, Lord, we pray for others in here who are struggling in different areas of their life, Lord, that you may minister to them by your spirit, Lord, that you may bring them up out of the life of sin that they may be in. Lord, that you give them the strength to, to, to forsake sin and to turn to you. Lord, those who may feel that you're not there, that, Lord, they don't trust their feelings, but they trust the truth of your word that you never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we pray for our country that you would bless it, that we might have a season of revival of pure and undefiled religion in our land. Lord, we perceive that you can turn the hearts of the people from the White House all the way down to our local city halls as the trees of wood are moved in the wind. Lord, we pray that there may be a deep searching of heart, great thoughtfulness of the scripture, reverence of God in the White House, in the Capitol, in the Capitol here in Montgomery and the principles of justice and peace. Lord, may this land make another stride towards progress towards you. And out of it, Lord, may there be a gathered people whom you have chosen, who shall show forth your praise. And Lord, we pray this morning for the preaching of your word. Lord, fill me with your spirit as I preach this text this morning concerning uh, the concern for apostasy, for turning away. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the text that we will read this morning. Lord, may you be glorified in the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, let's turn to Galatians, the fourth chapter. We're continuing through our study, our sermon series in Galatians. And this morning we're going to concern ourselves with uh, verses 8 through 20. I do have uh, a couple of slides with the principles on and applications this morning. But this text this morning is Paul's fears for the church, the fear of apostasy. And apostasy means a turning away from the faith. That's what it means to apostatize, to turn away from the faith which you believed, which you once believed. And Paul, as the apostle to this church, is expressing his concern for them. So this is the reading of the word. Philippians, I'm sorry, Galatians 4, beginning at verse 8. It says, But then indeed 
when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Excuse me, you have not injured me at all. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you do not despise or reject. But you receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, they meaning the Judaizers, the false teachers. But for no good, yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. My little children. For whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now. And to change my tone. For I have doubts about you. I mean, if you listen to that you'll see this is a tone of concern. From Paul he's saying things like I have doubts. About you. Has he become the enemy by telling them the truth? So obviously the Galatian church did not like what Paul was teaching them about not trying to obey the law to be justified. But I want to begin by just thinking about the turning away part. All of us have at some point in our life probably came to a place where uh, the way was so hard that we wanted to turn around and go back. That could be like on a, you know, dealing with a job or being in a marriage or some things like that. You know, life does get hard sometimes. And regardless of what you see on people's Facebook posts, life gets hard. Young people, remember that. As you get older, life does get hard sometimes. And what happens in those times is that some people, instead of plying forward, they do what? They turn back. Perhaps we try to make strides in our career or a relationship or our walk with Christ. And yet in doing, things got harder, not easier. And then it dawned upon us to go any further would require more of us than we wanted to give. And Paul lamented that in this passage. But the way forward is always the right path, not turning back. Persevering in the faith, especially when the way gets difficult at times, is the only way. The way forward is always the only way. That's why Paul said in another book in another passage, putting those things behind me, 
and looking forward to those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high call in Christ Jesus our Lord. We press forward. We don't turn back. So in this text, Paul finds this as ridiculous as the Israelites wanting to return back to Egypt. You see this in the book of Numbers. After they were liberated from Egyptian bondage, the Israelites confronted a difficult wilderness transition. And they wanted to turn back. They said, would that we were in Egypt. We want to go back. It is too difficult out here in the wilderness. That's in essence what they were saying. And in Numbers 14, uh, the report of the spies, when the 12 spies went out to spy out the promised land and 10 spies came back with a bad report and two spies came back with a good report. When they heard of giants in the land, they were so distraught and even indignant, they were angry. that They decided to appoint a replacement for Moses, the one who's going to lead them back to Egypt. They tried to stage a mutiny against their leader, they was asking Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? And it says here in Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4, it says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. After 400 years of crying and praying for God to take them out of Egypt, now they get out of Egypt and they want to go back to Egypt. This is in effect what Paul is hearing the Galatians saying. Like the Israelites of old, the Galatians want to return to the slavery of obeying the law. Now, you would think it would be obvious to us that turning back isn't the way forward. And yet, many times we do the very same thing in our human lives. We come into hard times. We come into hard situations. And what do we do? Instead of plowing forward, we do what? I quit. It was better back then. Some people, when they're saved, when God saves them and, you know, because they're told the lie that you give your life to Christ and everything will fall into place and everything will be easy. Then when God saves them, they begin to encounter troubles and tribulations. And they say, oh, man, I had it easier when I was in the world. That is the big lie. But they turn back when it gets hard. And the reason why is because many times we have a romanticized view of the past. We see the past as more promising than the future. When the way forward is hard, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. If we're going to walk at all. And that's precisely why going back often seems much easier. We've been there and done that. Traveling backwards requires little faith. It's familiar territory. But when it comes to living the gospel life, turning back isn't the way forward. Turning back is first class foolishness. Primarily because our last state will be worse 
than the first. People who have departed from the Christian faith, they're worse off than they were before they came to the faith. Because God has given them over to that rejection and rebellion. So Paul here is warning and rebuking them to keep them from plunging into further madness and back into slavery. So the big idea of this text is, is that justification by faith must be held on to despite the seducing deceptions of false teachers. And we're going to operate from four principles through this text this morning. The first one we see is in verses 8 through 11. Paul admonishes the Galatians away from apostasy. Look again at the text. He says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which were by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? In other words, why do you want to go back into bondage? After you have been delivered. In other words, what is wrong with you people? Why do you desire to go back? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Robert Gramacchi, the theologian, said Paul wanted to, to prove that legalism is no better than paganism. In principle, they were identical because both required strict observance of rituals and laws to gain salvation. So they want to go back to legalism, to obeying the law, to being justified by the law. And, and in essence, Paul said that's just as bad as paganism. That's just as bad as worshiping pagan gods. So what Paul was showing them that legalistic bondage was their lifestyle prior to conversion. And he gives three points of contention here. First, he talks about their pre-conversion days. He says, indeed, when you did not know God so before their conversion they had no knowledge of the true God so what were they doing since they had no knowledge they were serving false gods he says or uh, rather um, you serve those which by nature are not God so what Paul was showing them was how it was before they were saved before they came to Christ So they did not know God beforehand. And they served pagan gods because they did not know the one true God. Matthew Henry says that they did service to those by which or by nature were no gods. They were employed in a great number of superstitious and idolatrous services to those who, though they were accounted gods, were yet really no gods. But they were mere creatures and perhaps of their own making and therefore were utterly unable to hear and help them. So Paul was telling them, in essence, before God, you were worshiping no gods. And those gods were not able to help you. They were not able to assist you. And it reminds me of what the psalmist said in, in Psalm 135. 
that we just read in our sponsor reading a couple of weeks ago. The psalmist said here, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They are mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So Paul was showing them the foolishness of turning back. You're turning back to a paganism that did you no good. Where you're serving false gods that can't do anything for you. They can't hear. They can't see. They can't touch. They can't speak. That's how you were before God. And this is something to note here. Those who are ignorant of the true God cannot help but serve false gods. Can help but be inclined to idolatry. Those who forsake the God who made the world rather than being without gods, they worshiped such as they themselves made. When you try to build a world without worshiping the God and therefore rejecting the God who created it, it will not work because he cannot work. I say that all the time because it's true. You can't build a world without God. It's not going to work. It may seem like it's working. You may be self-deceived into thinking that it's working, but it is not working. It cannot work because it won't work. Religious worship is due only to God. Only to the one who is by nature God, and that is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so the Apostle Paul here is blaming them for turning back. When you're turning back, Galatians, he's saying, you're turning back from the one true God. And you're not turning, this is the thing, all of us are worshipers. Everyone is a worshiper. Either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping something or someone else. There's no such thing as worshiping nothing. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something or someone else. And so Paul is telling them, when you desert this God, when you turn from this God, you're turning back to the paganism that God actually delivered you from. So in other words, it was a fool's errand to do what they were doing. They were acting foolishly by doing this. And that's why he asked, Instead, but now, verse 9, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Like, how is it that you're going to turn back after you've been after God has delivered you out of that? So he talks about before conversion, then he says after conversion, but now. And he gives the essence of salvation from man's perspective that you have come to know God, but from God's perspective, or rather to be known by God. Ian Campbell, the theologian, said this statement refutes the idea that man is the one who reaches out to God. It emphasizes the fact that God is the one who does the reaching out. God is the one who draws men unto Christ, the Redeemer. Man doesn't reach out to God. Why? Because man hates God. Man rejects God. Man doesn't in his sinful nature love 
God. People aren't seeking God. They're rejecting God. It is God who does what? Reaches out to them and draws them in. If man was seeking God, guess what? There will be no empty churches on Sunday morning. You wouldn't have to poke and prod and guilt trip your unsaved family members into coming to church and then they not come anyway. If man was seeking God. No, man hates God. Man rejects God. Man doesn't want God in his natural sinful state. So it is God who does the drawing. So, so Paul is telling them, why are you turning back to this idolatry when it is God who drew you? You are known by God. Knowing God is the essence of the Christian life. Jesus said this in John 17 and 3. And this is eternal life that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is to know God. This is the essence of what it means to know God. Being known by God. Many people say, yeah, I know God. I talk to him all the time. But does God know you? J.I. Packer, the great late theologian, said, What matters supremely, therefore, is not that in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlines it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hand. I am never out of his mind. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is not a moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. J.I. Packer said this in his book, Knowing God. It's not that we know, we know God. That's not the important thing. The important thing is, does God know us? To be known by God, to have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1 and 4. To be kept as the apple of his eye. To be hidden under the shadow of his wings. That's Psalm 17 and 8. To have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's Revelation 20 and 15. To know it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's Luke 12 and 32. To have his son Jesus as our good shepherd. John 10 and 14. How insane would it be to turn our back on such a generous God. Who calls us his own. Who knows us by name. Who formed us in the womb. Who knew us before we were even born. So Paul expresses confusion or exasperation. How is it. That you turn again. That, that, that's, that's exasperation again. Like what is wrong with you. What has gotten into you. I can't believe that you want to turn back. Into slavery. Into bondage. It's like an abused woman or wife going back to her abuser after she's been set free and she, she got away from it. And, you know, years later, she goes back to that abusive relationship. Or a, a man going back to an abusive relationship also. Like, you, you, your, your friends were like, what is your problem? What are you thinking? What is wrong with you? It's the same thing for those who turn away 
from the bondage that they were set free from and go back into it. Oh, the world is better. Let me tell you all something. The world is not better. The devil puts that lie in front of you that, man, you got all this freedom. You can do whatever. It's just so much better out there. You don't have to worry about obeying this old Bible. Obeying this strict God. The enemy of your soul will say, man, it's better out there. You don't have to worry about all that. You don't have to worry about those church folks. You ain't got to worry about your folks. You're going to be all right. You're good. Go out there and live it up. Eat, drink, be merry. Have fun. You can, you can come back to God later on in your life. That's the lie. I got time. I'm still young. Let me tell you something. I've said this many times before. The more you reject God, the harder your heart gets. The more you reject the gospel call to be saved, the harder your heart gets to the point where you will get to a point of no return. Where God turns you over to that hardness. And there's no possible way for you to be saved. It does happen. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 4, the day that you hear my voice, harden not your heart. While your heart is still tender, you come. Because as you reject it, that callus is going to get harder and harder and thicker and thicker. And some people have the foolishness to think that they're going to have some type of deathbed confession. You're saying that you're God and you know how you're going to go out of here. You may lose your mind. I was reading about Bruce Willis, you know, the famous actor. I was reading an article about him this morning. He uh, did his, his will a few years before when he married his second wife. He has some type of disease called apatia where he's losing all of his mental faculties. He doesn't understand language. He doesn't understand anything. His family members are saying to him. You think that when he was 50 years old that, that, uh, that was gonna, he thought that was going to happen to him? Think about people who get Alzheimer's, dementia. Their mind starts to go. Think about a person who's laying on a ventilator. Who's basically brain dead. You think that person can make a deathbed confession when they don't have their mental faculties? No. At all. You die instantly in a car accident. You just drop dead from a heart attack. People all the time in their foolish pride think, I got time. I got this. No, that's bondage. And Paul was telling these people, do you want to go back to that? That's bondage. That's slavery. You're a slave to your sinful desires. And you want to go back to that? <laughs> that's, and that's why he was exasperated by this. He talked about the weak and beggarly elements. What are you speaking of? That obeying the law was powerless to produce results. Remember, the law doesn't change us. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us that we need a Savior. The law shows us that we're not perfect. And you want to go back to that? The law is powerless to save. 
The law leads us to the fact that we need a savior. But you want to go back to that. The law cannot enrich us. There's no spiritual wealth in it. There's no inheritance in it. There's no gift of life in the law. The law brings death. Why? Because all of us violate it. Remember, the law brings a curse. So Paul saying, you want to go back to that? And he says, you observe days and months and years. You're observing all these Jewish festivals and these Jewish holidays and these Jewish seasons, the year of Jubilee and all these different feasts. Paul saying those things are not going to do it. That's like Christians who uh, they call them what CEO Christians, Chris, Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> they only show up at church on Easter Sunday. And they may come to a Christmas program at the church that they grew up in. And they think that they're doing, you know, God a favor by showing up at church. That somehow that's going to get you entrance into the kingdom. But Paul says, I fear for you. He says, I'm afraid for you, not I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid for you. Lest I have labored for you in vain. Todd Wilson said, Paul no doubt shed his own tears over the Galatians. Not out of regret, but distress. He says, like a mother, he'd given them birth. And like a father, he had invested so much in them. Yet now they were prepared to throw all that away. As they turned their backs on him and his gospel. His final appeal in this is that they do not break his heart, that they don't squander everything he's done and indeed suffer for them. So that's why Paul was saying he was afraid for them. He was distressed. He cared so much about God's church that he did not want them to turn back. And I'll tell you just personally, that's at the heart of every pastor. Every pastor who cares about their flock. It is always a, a concern for preachers that their members don't turn away. It's always my concern. That those who are unsaved come to the faith because we know what awaits them if they don't turn to Christ. And those who are in Christ that they do what? Persevere until the end that they're not uh, deceived and taken away by the world that they don't turn back from Christ but that should also be the concern of every believer that loved ones you know who are not in Christ that they come to Christ before it's too late and those who are in Christ that they what persevere that they don't drift away you know, we sing this song in our old church. If your soul's not anchored in Jesus, you will surely drift away. If your soul is not anchored in Jesus, guess what you're going to do? You're going to drift. And you see something drift, it's just slowly, just slowly, like a piece of wood in the river. You just see it, the next thing you know, you don't see it anymore. Or you put something in the ocean and the way you just slowly just carry it out to sea. 
it drifts away. And so Paul had that kind of concern for them. That's why it's fitting for pastors to uh, address children, teenagers, young adults. And I ask our young people this too. Do you appreciate how many people have invested in you in your church over the years? How people in your life have made sacrifices for your sake, whether your parents or your grandparents or fellow church members? How numerous prayers have been made for you? The steady support and encouragement. No young people in this church can say that they haven't received encouragement and support from their church. None of y'all can say that. That your church family hasn't showed love to you. That your church family hasn't tried to sow Christ into you. Think about all that people have invested in you. And you turn around and squander all of that. You walk away from that faith. You know how many young people do that? They graduate from high school. Some of them go to college, which is uh, an indoctrination center into wokeness, where they tell you that there is no God, that your God is stupid, that Christianity is a false religion, that what you believe is bigoted. And you hear all that nonsense, that if you're white, you're an oppressor, and if you're black, you're oppressed. You go, you go to college and university and hear all that nonsense. Or you go and get a job and you work around all these unbelieving people. They're using all this profanity, telling all these rude and nasty and crude jokes and don't, and don't care about you. And then you hearing that stuff and, and you're not in the word and you're not in prayer. And next thing you know, you start talking just like them. They hate God. They reject God. Just ask some of the people in here who work what they work around. You're going to be working around the same thing. The next thing you know, you're talking just like them about the church. You're talking just like them about your family members who are saved. All that has been invested in you. I didn't think about this when I was young, but you know what? I didn't have people to tell me about this when I was young either. That's what I'm telling you all. When you think about those things, people are investing in you. Your parents, your grandparents, those who are investing in you to be like Christ. And if you turn around and forsake Christ it, will, Christ, it will all be in vain for you and for others. But when you realize, on the other hand, that for those who have poured themselves into your life for the sake of Christ, they will have no greater joy than to see you walking in the truth. That's what First John, uh, that's what Third John 4 says. I have no joy, no greater joy than seeing you walk in the truth. That is my hope for both my boys, that they walk in the truth. That should be our desire for all of our children. That they do what? Walk in the truth. Yeah, you can get married, have kids, all this stuff. But are you walking in the truth? Is your soul saved? When you die and pushing up daisies, will you be with the Lord or will you be tormenting in hell forever? That should be all of our goal to see for all of our young children, our young adults, and for everybody. So think about Paul. Paul was exasperated. That's why he said what? Lest I labor for you in vain. Have I done all this for nothing Galatians? That is the drift that we get here. Which leads to our next principle. Paul appeals 
for a restoration of fellowship. So verse 11, brethren, I urge you to become like me for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which is in my flesh, you do not despise or reject, but you receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So Paul here, of course, was dealing with a sickness. Paul had sacrificed for them, although he was sick. He sacrificed for these brothers, these sisters, these saints. You know that because of my infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. So Paul's like, what happened? So he begged them. He sacrificed for the Lord's church, for his people. And then he gets down to verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's how much they cared for him. But verse 16, he says, have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. When I saw that verse, and I've read that verse a million times, like that's a sermon all into itself. You know how people get upset at you when, you when you tell them the truth? How many can testify to that? Or we get upset when people tell us the truth too. <laughs> you know, it's the saying what? The truth what? The truth hurts. But man, it is a salve for your soul. Some people would rather be comforted by lies than confronted with the truth. It is the truth of God. You know, people say the truth shall set you free, but Jesus is talking about the truth of God, the truth of who God is. That's what he was saying, not just truth for truth's sake. You have to specify that because some people think that men can get pregnant and think that that's true. So no, we're talking about biblical truth, okay? The truth of God sets us free from bondage to sin. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Let me tell you all something. Maybe adults need to hear this, but especially children. Surround yourselves with people who will be true with you. Who will tell you when you're wrong. My wife tells me I'm wrong sometimes. I don't tell her she's wrong because women are never wrong. <laughs> you know, wives are never wrong. Uh, you know, isn't that right there? <laughs> you know the, the wife is always right happy wife happy life I think that's somewhere in the Bible <laughs> but don't surround people who will lie to you and tell you lies just to make you feel good just so you know and, and, and that's the that comes from fear of man you're afraid to tell somebody the truth because you don't want them to be what mad at you but guess what they ain't your friends if you can't tell a person the truth because you're afraid they're going to get mad at you, then what kind of friend are they? If you want to be a friend to the person, tell them the truth. No, you don't need to be wearing that. No, you don't need to be going with this 
this boy or this girl. Or, no, you don't need to talk to your parents like that. No, you don't, you don't need to cheat on this test. You don't need to cheat. Hey, can I look on your paper? Uh, no, that's cheating. I'm not going to speak. I'm going to unfollow you. Well, unfollow me then. Y'all not real friends anyway. It's virtual. Virtual friendships are not real friendships. Virtual followers are not real followers. It's like the old Facebook meme I saw a few years ago. Uh, it was an a older man, and, um, you know, it was a, visit, visit, is a, is a visitation, funeral visitation for this man, and it was like three people, like, dotted in the audience, and then someone said in the meme, uh, well, he had 3,000 Facebook friends. <laughs> Y'all get it? <laughs> but only three people was at his funeral. <laughs> Because they're, they're not real. But the point is, Paul was saying, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? When did this happen? John MacArthur said, many people appreciate a preacher or teacher only as long as he says what they want to hear. You know, Paul talked about this. The confused and defecting believers in Galatia had once greatly admired Paul, but now they looked on him as their enemy because he confronted them with the truth about the genuine gospel of God, which saved them and the false teaching of the Judaizers, which led them back into the bondage of legalism. So they were, you know, when you're witnessing to a family member that's not saved, they may get mad, but guess what? They still need to hear it. I don't want to hear that stuff. Tell them anyway. If you die in Christ, you're not going to heaven. I can't pray into heaven. Nobody's going to, no matter what, what kind of good sentiments people have of you, no matter how many good thoughts or good vibes people send your way, that's not going to matter when you stand before God. So they were upset. And the point is, it wasn't Paul who changed. His message and methods remained the same. But when Paul confronted the Galatians with their break from the true gospel, they turned on them. They became defensive. Just like people do when you tell them the truth, guess what? They get defensive. You know the old saying, if it's true, you don't have to worry about it, right? Why are you getting mad if it's true? The same problem exists today. Think about it. Churches split. Friendships end. Pastors resign. Because someone had dared to tell them the truth. If you're not friends with somebody because they tell you the truth, you're not a good friend. You should appreciate their friend for telling you the truth. Because what the truth is, truth, truth can heal our relationships if we take off Pride. And clothe ourselves with humility. A person who is humble will receive truth. They'll say thank you. For telling me the truth about myself. That's what they would say. That's what humility looks like. Pride says you hurt my feelings. Pride says how dare you. Humility says, thank you. 
Now, this doesn't ensure that there will never be conflicts, but the most important thing is who will it bring glory to when you're truthful? God. Not to you, but to God. It brings glory to God when we are truthful with people. But the Galatians, apparently, again, they made Paul into an enemy because he told them the truth. Lord, forgive us when we do that. But keep telling the truth. Keep proclaiming gospel truth. Whether people want to hear it or not, guess what? You proclaim it. You can say, Lord, I tried. I warned them. This is Paul is warning them not to turn away. We can say the same thing. Lord, I warned them. I warned them over and over and over again. Come to Christ. Be saved. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. I warned them. Your conscience will be cleared. If you know in your heart that you have warned them. And yet they still, because look, it's not up to us to save them. It's up to us to proclaim the truth to them. We obey God, we proclaim the truth, and leave the results to God. Amen? So the next principle here, verses 17 and 18. So Paul indicts the false teachers. He says, they, he's speaking of the Judaizers who were false teachers who were telling the Galatians they had to obey the law. They zealously, they had great zeal. They zealously court you, but for what? No good. A false teacher is never up to any good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. We have to beware of the ulterior motives of false teachers. And let me tell you something. False teachers always have ulterior motives. Ulterior motives are motives that are not good. The evil motives. Motives that they hide from you. They eagerly seek you, as Paul says, not commendably. These false teachers seek after and make much of the Galatians for no good purpose. That's what we're seeing. They only want to shut them out. So that the Galatians might seek after and make much of them. And man, we have to understand this. We, at our church, we, we always preach it. But look, if you know people that in any situation, same thing. We have to watch out for spiritual leaders that try to make you depend on their ministry. Making ministry all about them and not about Christ. If you see me ever making this ministry about me, you let me know, please. Because it is not about me. But we have to watch out for spiritual leaders that try to make you dependent on their ministry. These false teachers are all about elevation and self-promotion. There's a church right up the street from here that has a lion in front of it, an old social security building called Blueprint Church. They have an elevation today for their, quote, apostle. And it's on their Facebook page, the live stream, Elevation Sunday or Sunday Elevation. She's being, quote, elevated to a doctor 
didn't go to college for it, didn't study, didn't write a dissertation and get it published. But she's being elevated. First, she was elevated to an apostle, which already she's a false preacher because women can't be pastors, number one. But number two, she's being elevated. You saw all the comments, praise God, you know, praise the Lord, apostle, and blah, blah, blah. Congratulations. Paul said the same thing that they're doing. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them because false preaching is all about the false pastors. It's all about them. And people go to church. Why? Because of them. And the church becomes about the false preacher and not about Christ. They're not pointing people to Christ. You're talking about an elevation service where Christ is not being elevated. That's blasphemy. That's heresy. That's dangerous. Yeah, a lot of people walking around wanting to be what? Prophets and uh, apostles and, and all this mess. I saw a post on Facebook by a friend of mine who's a false preacher. He posted something on Facebook. I want y'all to listen to this right quick. He says, there are people that really speak as prophets and their words are true. Oh, Lord, whose words are only true? God's. See, when, when, look, when you see stuff like this as a believer, you should be like, uh-uh, no, that's, uh-uh. He should say there's a person who speaks as a prophet and his words are true, but he says people. And, and just listen to the pride in this and, and the self-glory. And this ties into what Paul is talking about here. I am amazed sometimes at the things that happened just as God said they would. It's been a few years now, and a guy I was ministering to was in pieces because his marriage was ending. I heard the word of the Lord. He didn't give a uh, book, chapter, and verse in context. I told him it won't be long. He'd be married again, and I see three children, two boys and a girl. Y'all... He is married, and I received word that he had a little girl and then a little boy years ago. Yesterday I heard his wife had delivered their third child. Can y'all guess what sex it is? That's right, a little boy. Why is this important? It reminds me God is yet alive and is speaking to the hearts of men daily. Beloved, continue in the faith. God sees you a yes. And he will perform his word in your life in his perfect time. Be encouraged. This is on a temporary moment of testing. Of course, that last part has nothing to do with what he said. But he's saying basically that he prophesied that this would happen. And it happened because he said it. He posted this an hour before this post. A few years back, a good friend of mine that's connected to me, not connected to Christ, was having a hard time and he would voice it to me. I guess he's the mediator. His connection to me gave me access to hear from God on his behalf. Y'all see the blasphemy in this? I prayed for him and God gave me a dream. In that dream, I saw him signing a $320,000 check. 
Now, we don't know if this is true or not, but he says the next morning I called him and told him about the dream. Three years later, he called me and told me I just got a check for 320K. And this is the last thing he said. What profit are you connected to? I'm getting angry just reading that. Why should this anger you? And why was Paul angry with the Galatians? Because these false teachers, they want to exclude you. They want to separate you from the true faith in Jesus Christ. They want to separate you from biblical truth. And that's what the Judaizers was doing to Galatia. They were trying to separate the Galatians from the justification that they had in Christ. They were trying to pull them away so that they can draw them to them. And that's what this man that I just read his Facebook post about is, is trying to do. Trying to draw people to him. I'm the prophet. I'm the one you need to, whose feet you need to sit under and listen to. Because I have the words of God. God speaks to me and he tells me things that are true. And you got people flocking to churches like this. And no, I'm not jealous. I fear for him. I fear for uh, false preachers like that. They're all over this town. They're all over this county. They're all over this state. They're all over this nation. They're all over this world. That's why Paul was concerned about these people. <laughs> so false preachers, they draw people away. They have, what does Paul say? For no good. They court you for no good. They have no good purpose. They're not concerned about the flock. Hope you all can see why Paul was indignant. And why you should be indignant. When you see this going on. Joseph Pippa said in his commentary on this verse, he says, we learned here in this passage something about the typical behavior of false teachers. They present themselves in such a way so as to build a following among God's people. He says a true pastor does not seek his own, but God's glory and the well-being of those to whom he ministers. False teachers bask in the sunlight of attention when they are present. But when they move on, they could not care less about the people they have left. For this reason, Paul points out that even when he is apart from them, he longs for their well-being. Here he expresses pure pastoral love, a love that always seeks the best for the beloved. And that's what a true pastor does. They truly care about the flock. They don't fleece the flock for money and, and tell them loving lies. And seek elevation. And they got people just coming in. They're just recycling people. Just like the, the elevation uh, lady. I, I was telling a friend. I said you know some of those people that were there. Her cheerleaders at the beginning. They're not there now. They probably got tired of that nonsense. But they probably went to another church like that. They just recycle. They got all these new people. All these cheerleaders coming in. That's what they seek. They want cheerleaders. And Lord, if you just watch somebody that serves you, you'll get a headache. 
They don't exegete the text at all. I mean, they only have a Bible open. Last principle here. We're going to land this plane. Verses 19 and 20. Paul exhibits pastoral concern and motivation. He gives an intense concern like a woman in childbirth. And his specific motivation is Christ formed in the Galatians. So verses 19 and 20 exhibit passionate pastoral concern for Paul, of Paul rather. He refers to the Galatians basically as my little children. He says that in verse 19. He expresses his anguish with a powerful and vivid metaphor. You see in the text here, he describes it as what a, a woman in labor. The second time with the same child. Whom I labor again until Christ is formed in you. His goal is not that the Galatians would make much of him. You see that. It is that Christ shall be formed or morphed in them. And this shows the goal of discipleship for the church and for all of us. Paul's pastoral concern is grounded in the motivation of seeing believers grow more and more like Christ to the glory of God. That is what discipleship should look like. This should be the desire, this should be the desire of all believers for all believers. Our desire should be to see people grow in their faith in Christ. It's not just the duty of the pastor to disciple. It's for all believers. All of us are called to help each other grow in Christ. All of us are. Because he loves them, he longs that, they're, that uh, they be there in order to protect them from false teachers. That's why he longed for them. He wants to be there and protect them. So that's why he says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Because he loves them, he longs to be there in order to protect them. He regrets having to deal rougher with them. That's why he said, and to change my tone. So Paul basically argues to win back their affections. So he kind of brought it back. He kind of settled down at the end. He was showing them, look, I'm concerned for you because I love you. I have helped disciple you. I'm not your enemy. I have doubts about you, and that's why I'm talking this way. But it's not out of hate, but it's out of love. Amen. Three applications here. We close. Two ways forward. You know, we talked about in the beginning, not turning back, going forward. The underlying pause are the highlights, basically. The first way forward is through the cross of Christ. There's always the temptation to turn back. Especially when life gets difficult. But. The wilderness of this world is filled with troubles. It is going to be. It's always going to be. But turning back is not an option. It's not the way forward. It's never the way forward. The way forward is through what? The cross. We go to the cross. We look at what Christ did for us. We look at the work of Christ. We look at the fact that Christ defeated death. That Christ bore our sins. Christ died in our place. 
he bore God's wrath against us. We always look to the cross. Like we sung the song, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul. We look to the cross. And then lastly, imitation is the best solution. Like Paul, we walk in the way of discipleship, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We serve one another in love and are led by the spirit. We imitate those who are walking after Christ. It's okay to do that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You imitate those who are doing what? Walking after Christ. Those who are striving to live a godly life. And in fact, who are living a godly life. Those who sin and confess their sins and repent and turn away from their sins and struggle against sin. Not following those who are living in sin and just reveling in it. Those are not people you want to follow. No, you follow those who are following Christ. You, you, you follow your godly parents and your godly grandparents and your godly aunts and uncles and your godly friends, if you have any. If not, find some. I tell you what, you know, me and my friends used to get picked on in college. My Christian friends, we used to get picked on. It's called us holy rollers and all this stuff. Wow, we used to be praying Praying outside in the mall and having Bible studies in the dorms. And, and I wasn't no perfect little college kid. But my point is we were, we were young Christians on a college campus. And we would have Bible studies in the dorms and stuff. And some people pick at us because of that. But we was doing what was pleasing to God. We wanted to be an influence to our fellow college students who were out there partying and, and doing all this other stuff. And flunking out of school and getting pregnant out of wedlock and all that stuff. And, and having to drop out. Not saying that those are unforgivable things, but the point is, that's not what they went to college for. But guess what? It ended up happening. And so we said, okay, look, God has a better way for you. And that's what we tried to do. We tried to be an example, imitation. Because I'm going to tell you what, all of us are leaders. Someone's watching your life. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It's not, it doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. But how do we handle those mistakes? Do we own them? Yes, I did live like that. Yes, I did talk like that. Yes, I used to think like that. But now, I don't. God has saved me. God has redeemed me. And because of that, see what God has done in my life. Guess what? He could do the same in yours. That could be our testimony. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it convicts sinners, bringing them to a saving faith in you. Lord, I pray for those who hear this that contemplate turning back from their life of faith, turning back to the lies of the world, the deceitfulness of Satan. Lord, that you may stop them 
that you may draw them, continue to draw them back to you. Lord, I pray also for anyone in here who thinks that they're beyond your saving grace. That, Lord, no one can outsee in your grace. No one can outsee in your merciful hand. No one, Lord, is lost utterly and totally in this place. Lord, bring salvation to those who don't believe. Encourage the faithful to continue to persevere in the faith. And Lord, also help us to be able to receive the truth in love. Receive correction in love because correction is truth. To not be angry or upset when someone tells us the truth of your word, but that we may receive it as the words of a friend and not be comforted by lies. Lord, until we meet again, may your grace be with us all. In Christ's name, amen.